внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. The debate over Russia policy in the West is unfortunately not always grounded in reality. All too often, it is instead based on myths and misconceptions that have been spread by disinformation campaigns and perpetuated by whataboutism. And as a result, Western policy toward Russia is often driven by wishful thinking on the part of many well-meaning Euro-Atlantic politicians and policymakers. Today, we'll speak to two of the authors of an important new report that deconstructs and debunks some of the most persistent myths about Russia that influence Western policymaking. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from deep in the English countryside is Keir Giles, a senior consulting fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, better known as Chatham House, and the author of the highly acclaimed 2019 book, Moscow Rules. Welcome to The Vertical. Keir, I'm glad we were finally able to get you on the program. Hello, Brian. Hello. And also joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere between London and Oxford is James Nixie, director of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. Welcome back to the podcast, James. It's been way too long. That's way too kind, Brian. Thank you very much indeed. So the title of this excellent new report that Chatham House just put out is Myths and Misconceptions in the Debate About Russia, How They Affect Policy and What Can Be Done. For those who haven't read it yet, and shame on them, I highly recommend you do, and it's available for free at chathamhouse.org. James, I want to start with you because it's my understanding that this report, which has 17 contributing authors, including the two of you, was in fact your brainchild. Um, great idea. What drove you and your colleagues at Chatham House to produce this report? Well, first of all, I, I mustn't take all the credit because it wouldn't be true. All these things, when you're in a team as large as the Chatham House, Russia and Eurasia team, are, are very collaborative. And I suppose a couple of things come to mind. One is one is that we get together and we think, what can we most usefully do? It's very think tanky. It's very, how can we most forcefully impact upon policy is one thing. But I suppose if I admit something else, maybe almost more personal, it's, it's, it's something, it can, it's born of a little bit of frustration. I mean, come on, Brian, we've been sitting in these conferences and roundtables and seminars for, uh, you know, a quarter of a century now. And we hear these same old tropes being trotted out time after time, that NATO enlargement, NATO expansion uh, caused Russia to be as it is, that Russia is entitled to this defensive perimeter because it's in its very nature, you know, that Russia and the West, you know, they, they intrinsically want the same thing, but they need to cooperate, that they must cooperate. Or that, of course, you mentioned whataboutism in your intro, that, that really the two sides are as bad as each other. We saw Lavrov come out with it just what, three days ago uh, in a classic piece of whataboutism uh, in his manifesto just there. So I think a lot of it was born of frustration and, of course, principally because because it, the fact of the matter is, is we have gotten Russia wrong. I don't mean as in we've misunderstood it. That is often a misnomer, but used by pretty much anybody. But more because of the fact that, that, that Western policy has never really 
been able to confront Russia for what it is. And I suppose that's the ultimate frustration, that Western policy has failed, not so much because of the West, but because of the cultivation of these myths, homegrown, mm -hmm and from Russia itself. Well, I, for one, I'm really glad you guys put this out. It's getting some attention here in Washington. I'm doing my best to get it more attention here in Washington, and I hope it's getting attention on the continent um, as well. And you've touched on a couple of the, what are some of my favorites, um, the trope that Russia and the West are just as bad as each other that, that James Scherer wrote, and that, that Russia was promised that NATO wouldn't enlarge, um, that John Lowe wrote. Um, and I, and I want to get into those in a bit. But Kira, I wanted to drill down into one of the myths you tackled in the report, that Russia and the West essentially want the same thing, that Russia's interests and values are compatible with those of the West. This was also one of the overriding themes of your, your book, Moscow Rules. Um, I couldn't help but notice I was, as I was reading your segment of the report. Could you unpack this myth and your debunking of it for our readers? Well, you're quite right. It is an overriding theme, not just of, uh, of Moscow rules, but also it's a theme that underpins quite a few of the other myths and misconceptions that we tackle in the report, partly because it is so pervasive in Western approaches to Russia, and it recurs again and again. James mentioned the frustration that we feel in having the same conversations over and over again, not just over years, but over decades, tackling the same issues. And the idea that the, the interests of Russia and the West must at some level coincide, that fundamentally they must be working towards the same kind of relationship between because they want the same thing is a constant that has to be tackled again and again because it leads so consistently to the wrong approach to russia if you go to moscow uh, with the understanding that actually uh, everybody before you has failed in reaching a dialogue with Moscow because they're approaching it wrong, as opposed to because your interests and your objectives and those of Russia are diametrically opposed, then of course you're going to get off on the wrong foot. But we see the same cycle of attempted reset then disillusion, then crisis, repeated over and over again, because this fundamental fact simply isn't recognized. Now, you mentioned values and interests and how they don't coincide between Russia and the West, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's basic objectives for the security of Europe. It's how you interact with other countries. It's even how you interact between the state and your own people. There are so few points of contact between Russia and the West in terms of interests, values, morality, understanding of law, understanding of how you operate in the world, that we shouldn't be surprised that uh, all of these efforts to find a reconciliation with Russia eventually fail. At the moment, we've got President Macron of France, who is still persisting in this idea that, yes, we must have a Russia reset, joined recently and startlingly by Angela Merkel. But the pattern, and it's something we touch on in the report, is so very consistent of the disillusion following on from realizing that actually, no, uh, the things that you're trying to uh, appeal to Russia with are simply not of any interest to Russia. Now, I was I was wondering what that how that can be translated into policy because I've been watching an inch I mean the new administration here in Washington I've you know been picking up signals about how what Russia policy is going to look like from from the new Biden administration and it's my understanding that basically there is there is agreement in the administration about the nature of Russia and and, and it's it's an understanding that the three of us would not disagree with. 
But yet there is a debate going on in the administration between those who are, are for lack of a better term, let's say the, the don't poke the bear caucus, if you will, and that's largely in the White House and the NSC, and the more the, the more kind of aggressive containment caucus, which is kind of emanating out of the State Department. So here we have, I think, an administration that basically sees the same Russia that the three of us do, but yet there is a debate about how to deal with it. I, I'd like to kind of get your both of your takes on, on on that kind of a situation where this doesn't appear to me to be a case of misperception, but nevertheless, this policy debate persists. I don't know if you care if you want to tackle that first and go to James. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there, there are two different things we're dealing with here. Uh, we've taken the first step, it seems, refreshingly and encouragingly with, with the current administration in the U.S., of adjusting mindset, of dealing with some of the, the global issues that we're tackling in the myths and misconceptions, understanding that, yes, Russia does want something fundamentally different from the world than the United States does. But then there's the second layer. There's dealing with the actual policy issues, the implementation, building on that. Uh, the thing to bear in mind is that anybody that has stepped out of that default Western liberal democratic mindset, thinking that Russia is going to be the same as them, and has come away from that and actually started to construct policy on the basis that this is, in effect, an adversarial relationship, is much further forward than most of, for example, Western Europe. So you can put in place sensible policy once you've overcome some of those global themes, those global misunderstandings of Russia that we cover in the early part of the Myths and Misconceptions report. Then you can start to fine-tune those issues of to what extent are you going to pursue an assertive policy against Russia as opposed to a hands-off one. But those basic building blocks of, of getting policy right are already in place, it seems, in the United States, are strikingly still absent in a lot of Europe. Yeah, no, I thought it was notable that, that uh, President Biden is the first president to come to office since Ronald Reagan without the express objective of improving relations with Russia, right? This has been a persistent theme going back to George H.W. Bush through Clinton, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, of course, Donald Trump. Uh, this is the first president since Reagan that came into office without this, but yet, nevertheless, this debate persists. James, did you have anything to add? Because I want to drill down with you on your on the the, the 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 myth that you tackled, but I wanted your thoughts on this as well. Sure. Well, just very briefly, I, firstly, on what you were just saying, I completely agree, and it's it's quite clear with Biden's experience and the fact that he's met. Uh, Putin before, and when the number two is met on, in the Obama Medvedev era, but these two did not get on. And I think that that does actually help if he doesn't have these sort of preconceived ideas, pre-inclinations towards cooperation, if you like. Uh, I think the main issue I would have with what you were saying, not with what you were saying, Brian, of course, but with with the, the debate as it is, is is your don't poke the bear community. Because what does that actually mean when you drill down to into that? I mean, because in a Western society, when you have you know journalists, investigative reporters, NGOs human rights organizations, you can't stop, you know, the community feeding into the government to talk about the Navalny's of this world or, right. uh, or, 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 you know, some of the more egregious elements that we see in Russia today, either inside its borders or beyond. So I, I, I think whilst the debate is to be welcomed in the sense that, you know, OK, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet in so, as far as we see Russia, I mean, it's a misunderstanding of the West, but it can't, but poking the bear is not antagonizing, it's not literally happening. We're not actually antagonizing right. Russia more that we are rationally assessing what it is doing inside and externally. That's, I guess that's why. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the way I've always thought about it is it, it's, Russia doesn't have a problem with what we're doing. It has a problem with what we are. 
And so this is this is where I think there's a kind of this fundamental disconnect. But I think what's going on here in D.C. in this debate has a lot to do, James, with the, the myth that you tackled, because the, the feeling is that we need relations with Russia to calm down so we can pivot to confront China. Right. This is the there are a lot in the administration who want to focus on China and who want the Russia problem to quiet down. Um, I don't think the Russia problem is interested in quiet down, but James, you took on this very persistent myth that is highly relevant in the policy discussion that the West needs to normalize relations with Russia in order to confront a rising China. I think you correctly uh, debunked this, but could you could you unpack this for our listeners as well? Yeah, sure, and thank you again. I mean, look, it, it's seductive, isn't it? I mean, all, as all myths are, it's it's initially tempting, it's superficially appealing, and and I, I get that because. One can't deny China's rise. One can't help but be disquieted about the things that China is doing. And none of the none of the none of the words in my chapter were designed to belittle or undermine or downplay what it is that China is doing. Of course, we're disquieted by what's happening in Hong Kong, treatment of Uyghur population. Absolutely. However, it's wrong that we should make good with Russia, make nice with Russia because of China's challenge for the following reasons. The four, there's four really. Number one is that it underestimates the damage that Russia has done and is prepared and is equipped to do. And, and let's, let's be honest here, China is not actually crossing international borders in, ang in anger. Uh, it's not actually assassinating people beyond its borders in the same way that Russia has done with radioactive and biological chem and chemical elements. So that's the first point. So we, we un it underestimates what Russia is doing, and it seems to forgive Russia for what it's, for what it's doing. And of course, you know, the atrocity of MH17 is as bad today as it was six years ago. So let's not, let's not downplay that. The second reason that it's wrong is because <laughs> I think in spite of what I've just said about China, the jury is still out a little bit. I wouldn't totally rule out the possibility of a sustainable relationship with China. I, I may be wrong. You'd need a China expert to tell you, right. perhaps, or we need we need we need a crystal ball. No, those are my but instincts as well. I wouldn't I, rule it out. It's, I may be wrong. Thirdly, it's unlikely to work anyway. Really, I mean, regardless of whether you know ceding a sphere of influence to to, to Russia is within the gift you know, of the West, you know, a tenable alliance with Vladimir Putin's you know, regime has, has proven impossible. And besides that, how precisely would that actually help to address any, any, any threat from China? And finally, I think actually that the China-Russia pivot is overestimated anyway. It's questionable at best. I mean, the recent British uh, Defence and uh, Foreign Policy Integrated Review said it quite nicely, but China is a systemic competitor, while Russia is the, is the, is the largest and principal threat. And I see those two things being, being quite distinct. And of course, if Russia is this declining power and China is a conceivably rising power, then these two countries are not as close as we often think. We just look at them because they're both big problematic countries. But I think the idea of a long-term alliance between them is questionable at best. I would I would agree with that. I mean, history shows us that there has never been a, a sustainable long-term Sino-Russian or Sino-Soviet relationship. It always ends in conflict because their interests clash. Kier, do you have anything to add to this? Only that uh, I would re-emphasize um, James's last point. Uh, the the whole idea of um, of keeping Russia quiet in order to pivot to China seems to center around a means of putting Russia in its box and hoping that it will stay there. Now the problem is, whichever way you go about doing that, whether it's making concessions to Russia, meeting Russia halfway on things that it really wants, throwing other countries under the bus in order to do so, even Russia's not going to stay there because it fundamentally misunderstands Russia's objectives and what it's actually looking for. In 
terms of relationship with the outside world at the moment. Russia will never be content to be pigeonholed and placated in that way and, and sort of stay quiet for the, uh, the broader interests of the United States. So in that respect, the, not only is the, the fundamental objective of doing so a little alarming because, as James has so, so eloquently described, it looks mistaken, but also the, the dangers of the ways that in which the United States might seek to get there and the impact on third countries, particularly the countries in between, are a little concerning as well. I also wanted to touch on some of the chapters others have written, but I, I, I believe you're both more than more than able to, to talk about them. And three that really jumped out at me that I really enjoyed were James Shares' excellent uh, chapter on addressing the myth that Russia and the West are as bad as each other. This I call the, I would call this the whataboutism uh, chapter. But and James, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, James Sher did a brilliant job of of debunking that. I thought you want to kind of dive into that one a little bit for our listeners and kind of flesh it out. It's another of the, the cross-cutting themes. It's another of the things which underpins so many of the other arguments we have to have, which is one of the reasons why James uh, Nixie took the decision to put this one first. Because it is a topic that comes up every single time you are trying to contrast and compare the behavior of Russia and the West, and there is always somebody in the room who will uh, who'll raise that objection, say, aren't we doing precisely the same thing? And this comes back to one of the, um, the core objectives of actually producing this myths and misconceptions report. They are standalone chapters, they're standalone sections, each taking a particular issue. What we wanted to do was to save time and to save analytical bandwidth by short-circuiting those conversations because they happen so often and so repetitively that we wanted to be able to flop out, here's something we prepared earlier, we've covered this issue, can we please put this to bed and move on? And one of the most important ones for saving a great deal of effort on the part of, uh, of Russian SMEs is tackling that question of, well, doesn't the West do precisely the same thing, so why are we complaining about Russia? James, anything to add to that? Only, again, a similar point to my last one, perhaps, which is perhaps it's superficially appealing again. I mean, t for most people, aren't exactly enthused with their governments at home. They tend to they can see the egregious mistakes that they make um, at home and abroad. We're not angels. And, you know, no one's no one's a virgin in the bordello. And I think what that what that, what that really means is that, is that you have to concede what needs to be conceded to start with and say, yes, we've made mistakes. We still make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. But if you actually tot it up in terms of a, a, on a ledger and, and see that the crimes, transgressions, atrocities committed, then, of course, Russia far outguns the West in that respect. And so I, I think that, that of course, you, you can equivocate all you like. You can use examples of Western poor behavior, but it just doesn't add up to the same kind of thing that Russia is engaging in in Syria, in Ukraine, mm -hmm. you know, inside its own borders. So I just think it's, it's, it's the moral equivalence is just gets trotted out again and again. Yeah, no, and I, I, I suspect that this is why you put these both Kier's and James Sher's chapters at, at the outset, because they do, as, as Kier said, kind of underpin the other chapters. I also really, really appreciated John Lowe's chapter on the, you know, debunking this ridiculously persistent myth that Russia was somehow promised that NATO would not enlarge. This is something I've, I've written on. The thing that drives me crazy about this argument is that it's impossible 
that James Baker or George H.W. Bush could have made a promise to Edward Shepard Nazi or Mikhail Gorbachev that, that NATO would never enlarge in the future. That is not the decision of the American president or the American secretary of state. The last time I looked at the NATO charter, NATO made decisions by consensus. So there's no way an American president can make a promise on behalf of the entire alliance for the future eternally um, because the the – 41st American president cannot make decisions for the 42nd, 43rd, 44th, and, and, and 45th American president, right? A future American president might have seen this differently. If it was enshrined in a treaty, then that's that's different. But that we know didn't happen. Could one of you unpack? I mean, the I mean, I, I know the arguments pretty well, but I, I and I thought you laid them out elegantly in this story. I thought that John Lowe laid them out very elegantly in this chapter. Anybody want to jump into that one? Well, Brian, I'm sure it uh, it won't have escaped your notice that of all the chapters in Myths and Misconceptions about Russia, that was the one that um, that had the most impact or got people the most excited among Western academics and writers. There was a yeah. uh, quite a, a um, how should you describe it? It was uh, it it, uh, it dropped like a bombshell into the middle of conversations between people and stirred up a lot of academics on on both sides of the Atlantic probably because it is such a divisive issue. And it's divisive because so many people have taken fixed positions on this and started to to stake their academic reputations on mm-hmm. one side of the argument or another. Um, but the fact that you've got people in these fixed positions on both sides just shows what a complex issue it is. Now, whichever angle of this question you take, whether it's the, the Baker, Shibat, Nazi um, conversations that you're talking about, or indeed any of the other bilateral or multilateral yes. conversations that were happening through plus or minus five years at various different levels, you're always going to come up with different answers about what happened. Eh? You referred to um, my own book, Moscow Rules, where I also touch on this, but I touch on it very briefly and effectively discard it because the conclusion that I'd come to after uh, doing my own digging and following up on some very smart people who've doing their own digging on both sides of this conversation was that we're just not going to be able to resolve it. NATO will and the United States will never convince Russia that there was never a promise made. Russia will never believe conversely that uh, that the real situation was as chaotic and muddled as it really was. Even though Gorbachev himself has said that there was never a promise. Well, here's the complicated thing. This is is a perfect illustration of why you're not going to be able to get an answer to this, because Gorbachev has provided evidence for both sides of the conversation. He said both no and yes, depending on which bit you're actually talking about it. So it is... It's impenetrable. It is a spaghetti soup of different narratives that are intertwining, and you're not going to be able to disentangle it. So John's taken uh, a snapshot of one particular one, one particular set of conversations that is one of the the main yeah. foci of this of this debate, and he's laid that one to rest. But of course, that stirred up all of the other things that were going on at the same time that support both sides of the argument. I mean, what what John seems to tackle is the 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 famous "not one inch to the east" promise, and that had nothing to do with enlarging NATO, in my is, is in my understanding. It had to do with when Germany was reunited, that there would not the NATO troops would not move into the former GDR while Soviet troops were still there. That's my understanding of the the "not one inch to the east" uh, alleged promise. Am, am I right about that? 
Well, that's one of the, again, it's one of the conversations. And each of those different conversations has their own ifs and buts and caveats and reasons why they can't be applied across the board and be taken as a, a blanket assurance from the US or from NATO that something would or would not happen. Uh, but uh, you, in order to actually get the whole picture of everything that was going on to create this impression, which Russia is now absolutely fixed to, that there was a solemn promise that there would be no NATO enlargement. You have to actually take all of those. And uh, and as far as I'm aware, uh, it would be such a massive undertaking to bring everything in mm -hmm. uh, that supports both sides of the argument that nobody's quite done it completely like that. And of course, right. uh, for uh, for John Loft in particular, uh, capturing all of that in 1500 words was going to be plainly impossible. So he focused on one of the most prominent angles mm. of it. James, anything to add to this? Not really, other than to say, but to your points, Brian, and then, you know, Wolfgang Ischinger, who was there at the talks himself, you know, and he's not exactly known as being a Russia hawk, you know, has, has absolutely confirmed your view. So if you've got prominent people, you know, who were there at the time, who are who who say definitively um, that no promise was given, no promise was made, and as you say, there's you know no piece of paper can be produced. Then it does seem to it does it does yeah. seem to suggest that you can you know that, that that there is a sort of a right and a wrong as far as this is concerned. But I would also just remind you that you know the, the NATO Russia Founding Act signed in what 1997, I think. You know it explicitly recognised the inherent right of all states to choose the means uh, uh, of their own security. So again, Russia is 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 constantly contradicting itself time after time. But then yeah, if you I, Ishinger, the fact that uh, he has pointed out that having been in the room, his impression was, uh, well, he explained it really quite uh, clearly. Uh, but then to see the way in which he was savaged for having um, sort of made a, a claim to having some knowledge of it simply because he was present at, for that conversation by um, historians and academics who say that experience counts for nothing because it is the uh, it is them, the historians and academics who pour over the records after and right. say what the definitive truth is, is a pretty good indication of just how toxic that conversation has become yeah. in Western academia. Yeah, and in a lot, in a lot of it's, it's a red herring because again, if there wasn't a treaty, you know, that was ratified by the, the, the legislatures of every NATO member at the time, it doesn't mean anything because no sec, no U.S. president or secretary of state can make that promise for the other alliance members or for future U.S. presidents for that matter. So this, this is one that's that's persistently driven me crazy. Another one that's persistently driven me crazy that it was, was brilliantly debunked by Anais Marine, I hope I'm pronouncing her name properly, um, is um, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia are in fact one nation. Uh, James, you 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 kind of work on kind of post-Soviet uh, affairs. That's your 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 academic specialization. So I, th this would be a good one for you to start out on because I I really appreciated how that was that one was just completely debunked. Yeah, Anais Marine, by the way, uh, yeah, French uh, a French analyst, um, and she probably needs more of an historian than I am to to, to really properly debunk it. And and uh, Marine's uh, background makes her able to do that better than myself. But at the end of the day, if you go back into history, you can quite clearly see that these nations are not artificial nations. Um, that's not true in every single case, of course. You could you could you could dispute that, of course, as far as Azerbaijan is concerned. It doesn't go back an awful long way in the way that Armenia does. But if you look at the, if you go back into the histories of Belarus um, and, and Ukraine, then quite clearly they are distinct peoples with distinct languages, cultures, ethnicities, and 
they have only relatively recently or for a very short period of their overall history been subordinate to Russian control. So it is an expediency for Russia to claim that they are, you know, brotherly or of one. Just to just to sort of bring it into into the present day, then uh, it's it's interesting as far as how how the Russians view uh, Ukrainians. There's a there's a football match coming up. Yeah, I don't know if you've a uh, soccer yeah. match for you yes. coming up on Saturday night, um, yep. and it's between the UK, it's, it's between England uh, and Ukraine, and it's always very interesting to see how how where you know who would Russia support? Does it support uh, Ukraine as brethren? Uh, supposedly, or or, or, or or not, and the answer is probably. But it supports it will support Ukraine because they just feel betrayed by by Ukraine. But they, whereas they just pretty much hate the Brits. Mm. I I really appreciated how Anais brought brought in the the, the history of the uh, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania before it. Um, and I mean, I, this, it's underappreciated that this this was the largest state in Europe at that time. Um, and, you know, Kiev was a thriving metropolis before when Moscow was an empty forest. So I actually I, I really appreciated how she kind of fleshed that history out. Uh, it's something I think that needs to be shouted from the rooftops a lot more. Kira, anything to add here? Well, you mentioned uh, the connection between Kiev and Moscow. And I think this was one of the uh, the original candidates for myths that we narrowed down to the list of 16 that we actually tackled. I think we started off with a list of 30 or so. Um, this notion that there's any connection between Kiev and the Rus and early Moscow right. for, for so long was a, uh, a founding mythology of the Russian state, but it was precisely that, a myth. And uh, people had difficulty explaining how the history of Russia suddenly leaps several centuries <laughs> I had trouble with this when I was studying Russian history for the first time. I thought I was kind of dim and just not getting something because I could never understand how Russia could move from from, from where it was. But go ahead. So, yes, they've um, rode back on that a little bit lately because, of course, the idea that uh, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine is longer, no longer quite so conducive to pretending that Russia started in Kiev. But still, it's uh, it's so deeply embedded in so many understandings of, of how exactly um, – uh, how exactly Russia came to be that I think it'll take a lot longer to eradicate it. I was doing a, um, a British TV um, history documentary, um, a fairly chunky thing about an hour and a half long, which is doesn't sound like a long time for a canter through a thousand years of Russian history as it was presented, but mm. they still managed to get deep into some of these issues. And um, they decided in the end that it was just too complicated to explain that the whole Kiev and Rus thing was a fiction. And so they, they had um, Kiev and Rus, and then a commercial break, and then suddenly Muscovy appears with, uh, uh, with skipping over the explanation of, of how exactly the two were connected uh, in order that they didn't have to explain that they weren't at all. Mm. James, you look just, like you wanted to, yeah. Yeah, I, was just, I would just add that, look, I don't deny that the Russians feel kindred towards these places, as well as, a, as well as the betrayal thing I was mentioning earlier. It's just that when you go to these places, and this is what does it for me, when you go to, to Minsk and outside of it, when you go, when you travel around Ukraine, then they feel their separateness even more than the Russians feel their togetherness. Yeah. And at the end of the day, so that's for, that's the whole self-determination question at the end of the day. And, and it's and it's also that this this process is accelerating. I mean, it accelerated in Ukraine earlier, but now it is accelerating in Belarus. So I was looking at some very interesting public opinion polling. I think some of it was done by Chatham House or at least commissioned by Chatham House because I read it on your website about Belarus, where basically the um, when people what, what period of Belarusian history do you look to for inspiration for the present day Belarusian state? And I was pleasantly surprised to see 
that the top ones were the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and the short-lived Belarusian Republic of 1918, um, which barely lasted a year. Um, and way, way down on the bottom were any time where they were ruled from Moscow, the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. And I think that that's actually telling because what's, what's important here, they are becoming aware of this themselves. Go ahead, James. Absolutely. And the, the point you're really making is that these countries, the people of these countries know their history. They know it very well. And they, uh, perhaps this is back, goes back to the MISP uh, paper, whereby, unfortunately, the West does not really know this period of history very well. It has a very superficial understanding and tends to think, still thinks, that these countries are still you know, pretty much all the same. We know differently, partly because we studied it, partly because we've been there and traveled around the region. And of course, the countries themselves know differently. But of course, to your average, even educated person in the West, then these you know, they've never been there, they, bear, they don't know one from the other, they don't know the capitalism, they don't know the presidents of them, they, they, they're, they're not, it's, it's, it, I'm afraid a great deal of the problem here is, is, is ignorance you know, within our own societies. One of it was, well, part of it is also rooted in our own historiography, which let's, I mean, I don't know how it was in the UK, but when I was studying what used to be called Soviet studies, right, back in, in, in the 80s, the when you looked at the other Soviet republics as kind of appendages of Russia. I mean, that was how the historiography was here, um, and it took the breakup of the Soviet Union and some some groundbreaking work. The you know archives being opened, Ukraine particularly really establishing their true history and getting it embedded into Western curriculums. I'm not sure if this was the same in the UK. It took me living over there, talking to Ukrainian historians and and the Belarusian historians, and kind of getting a different, less Moscow centric view of the, the, the history of this part of the world. I, was it the same way for the two of you in, in, in the UK? I think that's fairly universal. And uh, James Sher actually uh, puts it quite neatly when he says, at the end of the Soviet Union, it turned out that nearly all of the Sovietologists were in fact Russianists. Yes. So it took more than that. Uh, it took more than that to actually understand that no, these were other countries which had uh, maintained their identity to a much greater extent than you would see if you were focused exclusively on Moscow. Okay, well, that's a good that's a good note to shift gears on. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a look at how these myths are actually influencing the current policy debate over Russia on both sides of the Atlantic. I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from somewhere deep in the English countryside is Keir Giles, a senior consulting fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, better known as Chatham House, and author of the highly acclaimed 2019 book, Moscow Rules. And also joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere between London and Oxford is James Nixie, director of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Снова веком. 
So the discussion of these myths and misconceptions is not just an academic exercise. It has real-world policy implications. And in this segment, I'd like to drill deeper and look at how these myths are actually influencing the policy discussion today on both sides of the Atlantic, especially in the aftermath of U.S. President Joe Biden's summit with Putin and the European Union's decision not to hold its first summit with Putin since the annexation of Crimea, despite German Chancellor Angela Merkel's wishes. Let's start with the broader Russian, uh, the, the the broader relationship between Russia and the West, and the debate about how this relates to China policy. We touched on this a little bit in the beginning, but but I, I'd like I'd like to drill down deeper. Are these myths? To what extent are these myths still affecting the policy debate? And where where does the policy debate need to go once we dispense of these myths? Look, we we chose these myths because they're poisonous, not some academic debate, but they genuinely do infiltrate policymakers' minds. And it's because I think maybe to touch upon an earlier point that that a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. You know, most politicians maybe have been to Russia and they've been impressed by Moscow. They've been they've been given the five star treatment and they've been talked to reasonably by Russians. In fact, they've been twisted around their little finger. In fact, because uh, Russians are very experienced in these debates, far more so than their than their counterparts. And so they are infused with these myths, um, which are well practiced by the Russian side. And as a result, the policymakers come back and they feed back into policy and the policy is softer or inadequate. Kira, anything to add there? James mentioned a little knowledge being a dangerous thing. And uh, maybe this is the time to point out that the, the Myths and Misconceptions report as a whole is actually intended for people with a little knowledge. And that might sound a little bit bizarre, but it's not intended for people who are Russia experts. Because anybody that is, has looked at all of these issues and has, has written or re read hundreds, maybe thousands of pages about it, isn't going to change their mind on the basis of one of these short little potted summaries of 1,500 words. Instead, it's for the people who are not deep into the Russian issues and so may have a tendency to believe the first thing that they hear. And the first thing that they hear is invariably one of these myths, whether it is presented to them by the Russian side or actually by their own policy establishment. So some of the most encouraging feedback that we get is from people who, um, who are new to the Russia game who had been swept along with the, the prevailing opinion which follows some of these myths and then are grateful to us for actually saying, no, there is another way of thinking about this. Here is why what you have learned so far is not correct. So in that respect, we think it's um, it's doing good work. And if, the, if our ambitions are realized, then this situation that James is referring to, when uh, Westerners go to Russia, are presented with these very persuasive and glib representations of how the world works, but then have something to set against that so that they do not fall for it entirely, uh, we'll be quite happy if that actually works out. Now, of course, there's a different pattern across uh, across Europe and North America, because similarly to, to how these aren't intended for Russia experts, they're not so much intended for countries that are expert in Russia, because all of these things are well known in the frontline states. They're now increasingly well known in the UK, and as we talked about earlier on, they're, they're increasingly recognized in, uh, in the United States. 
it's really the countries in between. It is old Europe, it's Western Europe, it's the big beasts of the EU, uh, where these um, these ideas that we're putting forward, these challenges to these widely accepted myths, are going to have the most uphill work to do. And of course, it's from those countries that the biggest dangers emanate, whether it is the, um, the Macron-Merkel initiative to, to have a summit with Putin against, obviously, the wishes of the whole eastern part of the EU, uh, whether it's support for NATO initiatives from France or Germany, um, they are always the, the weak links in that Russia-facing chain, even before you get down to southern Europe with its own problems and that greater geographical distance from Russia, which makes it less of an issue. So for all of these people across the board, we are presenting this as a, as a quick antidote and uh, a dose of weed killer for the these pervasive and invasive uh, weeds that pollute this policy debate. So we're hoping that what we can avoid is policy being constrained by these ideas that sometimes are promoted from Russia, sometimes are, are self-generated within Western liberal society, which completely misrepresent what Russia is and what Russia wants. One of the other things I found really helpful about it was the presentation. It's a very user for the when you read the online version, it's a very it's very user friendly. It was very it's very cleverly laid out. Each of these myths, it almost has this this feel of a briefing book, almost you know, and designed for you know bite you know for bite sized consumption. I assume that was intentional, but it's it's almost like it was tailor made for policymakers. I mean, I could see like congressional staffers and and, and foreign service officers you know pouring over this very. Easily. Is that correct, James? Yeah, uh, that, that is correct. I, I, neither Keir nor I can claim the credit for that one. That is actually the credit, the, to the credit of our, of our colleague Lubica Palakova, in fact, who designed the structure whereby we say, what is a myth? Uh, who has fallen for it? Who advocates it? Mm-hmm. Why is it wrong? And how it could be done better? And what is its impact on policy, by the way? So, so yeah, and, and I think you know, think tanks these days in a, in a competitive, possibly even oversaturated market are constantly trying to think of the best ways of presenting their material. And we still all like to write. We're still old-fashioned enough to be writers, but at the same time, there are new ways of even doing that, not just in new formats of publishing, um, uh, you know, not least, of course, your podcast, but but also in terms of how you, how you do this. Also, the fact of the matter is, is that people's attention span is short. Policymakers, we're told, can't read more than two pages at a time. I'm very sorry to have to say that. I remember the whole Reagan thing about Reagan didn't want a briefing of longer than half a page, but let's say two pages. So we're told not to make these things longer than two pages, but, you know, being semi-academics as we are, we still go on a bit. So each one is about four pages long. So there is a, there is a conscious effort to, to, to make this as user-friendly as possible. As Keir said, it's not written for specialists. It's written for people who probably don't have a lot of time who might be on a plane en route to somewhere where this, is, where this concerns. Specifically designed to be standing independently. You can pull a couple of pages out of the, those chunky copies and present them on a single issue without needing the context around them. It's, it's precisely designed for that. And I'm I'm also seeing. I mean, there's more. Maybe there's more progress than any of us like realize. I remember watching the the, the cable news coverage of the Putin Biden summit, and when Putin was giving his press conference, one of the anchors on you know on cable news said, "This is like a masterclass in whataboutism." And like, I was like, oh, my God, the word whataboutism has just you know, got into the, the cable news lexicon, which is pretty cool. That, that that kind of shows me that, you know, an influencer, a somebody, somebody who, who does shape public opinion on these things, a, you know, a cable news anchor would use that word to describe Putin's press conference. So maybe maybe we are making some progress here. Well, it's only taken 15 years. I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, can I can I? 
I'm okay. so sorry. Yeah, can I, can I, I'll, I'll make a confession to you, but I went to a very first Valdai summit um, in uh, 2003, and it was just after the Beslan massacre. Uh, and uh, you know, I was I was very young and raw in those days, but I still I still understood it. But even back then, as a callow youth, that Putin comparing the Beslan massacre to uh, the British troops in Northern Ireland was something completely erroneous. So I don't know about 15 years. It's been going on with Putin really since since the very yeah. very start. Yeah. Um, I wanted to move on to talk about Ukraine and Belarus right now, because these are two things that are obviously very much um, on, on, on near the top of the agenda with regard to these relations. And how do you see these myths influencing Western policy toward the war in Ukraine and the escalating political crisis in Belarus? I'll just say very, very simply, I think, that um, – that there is still an intrinsic problem with Western policymakers and the public in general in taking these countries seriously as genuine independent countries. Even though it's been 30 years since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they've had 30 years of independence, then it seems that they are not given the same accord, uh, the same respect but we might give a, a, you know, a Portugal or a Switzerland again because of a little bit of knowledge being a dangerous thing again and because it's convenient to do so. It's much easier. Wouldn't this problem just go away if they were unified in some you know, Eurasian union? Right. And that, is, that, is, that might be convenient, but of course it's, <laughs> that might be what even 150 million people in, in, in Russia want, although not really, but it's certainly not what 10 million people in Belarus want or 55 million people in Ukraine want. And at the end of the day, self-determination has got to be respected in a way, but that's, that's very inconvenient for policymakers who want the path of least resistance. So I think that the, the myth of the, the nations of Belarus, uh, Ukraine and Russia being one nation at the end of the day is not so much that people believe it because they know, they know it to be true, but because they want it to be true because it would make their policy lives easier and they can get on with dealing with other problems. Yeah, two things that drive me crazy, particularly in the debate over Ukraine. One is this tendency to look at Ukraine as this chess piece, right, that can just be played not as a, not as a sovereign state with its own agency and its own aspirations. And the other is the tendency on the part of the West to kind of play into the Russia's game about putting pressure on the Ukrainians all the time, but not putting pressure on Russia, right? This whole idea that, well, why isn't Ukraine complying with the Minsk agreements? Why isn't Russia complying with the, the Minsk agreements, right? This whole notion, and I have of a mixed mind on this, but how concerns about corruption in Ukraine will override concerns about Ukraine's sovereignty. Now, I think the two are related, and I think that needs to be framed entirely differently, because corruption is a vector through which Russia basically attempts to continue dominating Ukraine. But anything to add here, Kier, you're looking very pensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's me trying to look clever. Uh, Ukraine and Belarus are perfect examples of the power of these myths and misconceptions to do damage and to distort policy for the worse, because they encapsulate the intersection of so many of these different myths and misconceptions that we tackle in this uh, in this study. Uh, there is the idea that Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine are one people, therefore perhaps shouldn't Russia be in charge anyway. There's the idea that Russia should be entitled to its 
sphere of influence to its cordon sanitaire around it. And Belarus and Ukraine are obviously part of that. So many of the different, um, the different ideas that have constrained Western policy erroneously are actually bound up with this. Even the uh, this idea about NATO enlargement being the driving, driving factor for Russian aggression, and therefore um, you know, Russia should, in fact, be entitled to this area where Russia will, with the West will not take an interest. Put it all together, and you have the situation you just described, where people think that it is the countries in between and the millions of people that live there that should knuckle under to Russian pressure for the sake of a quiet life for the West. So yes, it's um, it's a good demonstration of the practical impact of all of these mistakes and all of these persistent uh, wrong ideas about the way Russia interacts with the rest of the world that we are trying to put to bed. That's a good note to wrap it up on. Do, you, do either of you have anything you want to add before we wrap up the discussion for this week? Well, there will be a follow-up. There will be a follow-up. Yes, that this is going down quite well. Uh, and uh, in fact, there are so many myths out there to tackle. As I mentioned a while ago, we, we narrowed it down from a long list to a slightly shorter list of, of 16 separate myths. We are considering which direction to go in next. We have a few options. Russian myths about the West, which can be equally damaging when they're mm. projected in our direction, is one way we might uh, explore in greater depth. Another one is the military mythbusters, the things that have entered the common lexicon for describing Russian military options. Some of the old uh, classic favorites like Gerasimov Doctrine, uh, hybrid warfare and so on, Russian A2AD, uh, the uh, the accompli strategy, all of these different things are uh, myths about Russia and projecting power that we might tackle in a follow-up volume. Well, I will look forward to that uh, greatly. James, anything? No, uh, just just to follow up on what Kier was saying. I mean, you're only as good as your last piece, and you've always got it. The pressure's always <laughs> on to produce the next one. I'm afraid, and right. so uh, Kier's absolutely right. We're just we're just, we're now in uh, this sort of distilling process where we boil it down and boil it down, and so so we can get to the the elemental ones. There's so many. I mean, you could you could you honestly, this is this is for work of, of huge volumes. But as you as you said, and your your huge compliment earlier, it is nicely nicely distilled and presented. So and that takes quite a lot of work. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, but this this did take probably about 18 months from. Genesis mm -hmm. to, to publication. So uh -huh. we've got to, I've got to do a bit better this time. That's that's my uh -huh. bad. Well, you know, the, the, the result was great. The, the report is called Myths and Misconceptions in the Debate on Russia. It's available at chathamhouse.org, and I highly recommend everybody uh, head over there and, and read it. And that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm the only one on this program who is not speaking proper Queen's English. Um, I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from somewhere deep in the English countryside has been Keir Giles, a senior consulting fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, better known as Chatham House, and author of the highly acclaimed 2019 book, Moscow Rules. And joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere between London and Oxford has been James Nixie, director of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. Gentlemen, thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you, Brian. 
Thank you so much. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up our mistakes and making us all sound a whole hell of a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.